I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and welcome to The Jackpod, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings truly unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. Okay, so today we are at episode 11. Tell us what your headline is, Jack. The F word. Now, the first time you told me this, Jack, I'll admit I laughed, but then you told me what you wanted to talk about, and it's far more sobering. So what do you mean? What I mean is Donald Trump's increasing use of fascist and Nazi imagery in his speeches. Okay. Wow. Well, we actually have one example here that you pointed us to, and it happened over the weekend uh, at a Veterans Day speech in Claremont, New Hampshire. And here is what Trump said. We will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. You know, Jack, even after many years of hearing Donald Trump's increasingly uh, extreme rhetoric, hearing him say something like that on a Veterans Day speech of all times and places, it's something else. It is. Vermin, you know, he, <laughs> he might have dredged that image up from the deep well of his indecency, or, or he might have read it, along with the similar comment he made a week ago that immigrants were poisoning the blood of the country. He might have read that from a book. His first wife said he kept by his bedside a copy of Hitler's speeches. Mm. Now... We should note, as of course you know, Jack, that both Hitler and Mussolini at various times used uh, rodent language to severely denigrate uh, those who opposed them. But at the same time, Jack, in the United States over the past five or six years, no matter how extreme Trump's rhetoric has become, very few people have been willing to cross the line and say, no, this is fascist. But you're saying now it's the time to do so, and in fact, some well-respected historians and and other analysts have? Yes, uh, too notably. And and remember, for historians to enter into present-day political argument is sort of against one of the canons of academic history. It's a violation of what they call presentism. They feel they have no authority over the present. So when they speak to the present, it's they've overcome some professional inhibitions. Two such people have done that recently, Robert O. Paxton and Christopher Browning. Both of them are now clear that the label fascist should be worn uh, indelibly by Donald Trump. Paxton is the Mellon Professor Emeritus at the Department of History at Columbia his, his work on Vichy France and the Jews in the 1970s essentially restored to the French the true history of the Vichy experience and documented the, uh, the, the eagerness with which the Vichy authorities uh, cooperated with the Nazis in exporting 70,000 Jews to their death. It was a, a major scandal in France and uh, really opened up a whole new terrain of truth that the French had tried to repress and keep out of mind. For our purposes, he's also the the author of a classic book, The Anatomy of Fascism. He is one of the world's authorities, and here's what he says. 
I resisted for a long time applying the fascist label to Donald J. Trump. Trump's incitement of the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th removes my objection to the fascist label. His open encouragement of civic violence to overturn an election crosses a red line. The label fascist seems not just acceptable, but necessary for Donald Trump. Mm. Now, Jack, we're living in a time where people use uh, very strong terms rather freely. So in order to understand the depth of, uh, of Paxton's sort of almost lament here, how does he define fascism? Well, in The Anatomy of Fascism, he says that fascism embodies a series of what he calls mobilizing passions. One, an overwhelming crisis that can't be solved by traditional methods. What did Trump say at this convention? I alone can solve it. Hmm. Two, subordination of the individual to the group and the maintenance of group purity. Trump, with all his talk about rhinos and people who don't have, who aren't with him, are against him, and they're they're uh, they're outside the group. Three, the group sees itself as a victim, and of course, everything Trump says is about this grievance, victim. They're out to get you, and so on. Four, the need for uh, the authority of a natural chief whose qualities rise above abstract reason. <laughs> That's Trump. No one could ever accuse him of having reason, abstract or otherwise, just the sense that he is the chieftain of this cult. And five, and most frighteningly, the use of exclusionary violence mm. to reverse perceived decline. Mm. Trump uh, has recently come out with a sort of agenda for his second term that uh, you know includes forcibly rounding up millions of undocumented uh, immigrants, putting uh, putting others in uh, internment camps, turning the Justice Department into a department of persecution against his enemies, and when uh, this was challenged and people said, "Oh no, he wouldn't do anything as bad as that," and it's wrong to call him fascist. Uh, one of Trump's uh, uh, people said, oh, wait for that second term. He will crush the existence of people who say that. So he's not hiding uh, what's in store for us if he wins. Well, and that preview, essentially, that Trump has already given us, if he wins the White House again, um, that is one of the reasons that another scholar that uh, you respect quite deeply has said it's time to call Trump what he is. This is Christopher Browning, again, an eminent historian of the Holocaust and, incidentally, the author of a classic book, Ordinary Men, about the Einzengruppen, the very people that Benjamin Ferenc, we had him quoted uh, him on our show the other day. He, uh, I think he's passed away mm -hmm. since, but he was then a hundred odd years old, and he was reflecting on his experience as the prosecutor at Nuremberg of the leader of Einsatzgruppen. These were the sort of pioneers of the Holocaust, and in Ordinary Men, 
Uh, Browning does a, a, a depiction of a battalion of them and how they went from being butchers and bakers and candlestick makers into mass murderers, a great and frightening book. Anyway, he has himself come out now and said, Trump is a fascist. He said, I've resisted, just, just like Paxton, I've resisted using the word until now, but something novel and menacing is taking shape with the possibility of a second Trump term. He says, unlike previous fascist leaders with their cult of war, Trump still offers appeasement to dictators abroad, but he has promised something much closer to dictatorship at home. Mm. <clears throat> For me, what Trump is offering in his second term meets the fascist meets the threshold for the label I'd use to describe him. He is, and it is, it, it, what he's promising is isolationist fascism. Hmm. Not fascism going out conquering the world, just, just, just going after his enemies here at home. Oh, that is so chilling and interesting, the concept of isolationist fascism. Now, Jack, it's not by accident that we have two historians here who you're presenting to us, and particularly one who's a scholar of the Holocaust, who have come to this moment where they see Trump as having passed beyond the pale, right? Because I'm going back and thinking about um, that tape we heard of what Trump said in New Hampshire, again, on a Veterans Day weekend and in a Veterans Day uh, uh, talk or speech. And that use of the word vermin, I, I want to come back to it again briefly, Jack, because it's not just that, oh, Mussolini and uh, Hitler used that language too. It's that it was effective, right? And so effective that um, you wanted to also point out that Art Spiegelman's historic and prize-winning book, Mouse, that's why, one of the reasons why the characters are all rendered as, as rodents, Yes, and, 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 and Spiegelman in an interview said this, I began to read what I could about the Nazi genocide. The most shocking revel re and revealing anti-Semitic work I found was The Eternal Jew, a 1940 German, quote, documentary that portrayed Jews in a ghetto swarming uh, with, with, with bearded caftan creatures and then cut to Jews as mites or rather rats swarming in a, in a little circle that said, uh, Jews are the rats, the vermin of mankind. This bit of Nazi filmmaking made it clear to me that this dehumanization was at the very heart of the killing project. Mm. In fact, Zyklon B, the gas used in Auschwitz as the killing agent, was a pesticide manufactured to kill vermin. Mm, mm. You know, when you told me a few days ago, Jack, that uh, this was the really challenging idea you wanted to bring to this uh, episode of the Jackpot, it suddenly triggered in my brain a memory of Philip Roth's 2004 book, The Plot Against America. Do, do you recall that book? It's it's where Roth uh, wrote a basically a fictionalized account of a 1930s election and portraying Charles Lindbergh as having won against uh, FDR. 
And of course, Lindbergh being uh, extremely far right, Philip Roth talks about how, or he tells a story of life under fascism in America in the 30s. And uh, I just went back and, uh, and, and thumbed through the book. And there's this quote here where he says, where Roth writes, to have enslaved America with this hocus pocus, to have captured the mind of the world's greatest nation without uttering a single word of truth, Oh, the pleasure we must be affording the most malevolent man on earth. I mean, are we, are we, really, are we really that close to that, Jack? Because, uh, sorry, I'm, pa- I'm pausing here to think because, as I said earlier, very, very few people until now, some, but hardly any, have been willing to say what we're seeing now is nation, nascent fascism. I mean, maybe because Trump hasn't overtly said, you know, given a given forward a plan for global domination or mass extermination. I mean, aren't those justifiable objections to bringing the idea of fascism and Trump together? Yes, and those are um, objections that have inhibited historians from commenting. Some have said to bring Trump into this ambit of this word of this word with its its malevolent, uh, as you say, uniquely malevolent overtones is to trivialize the Holocaust. But uh, Christopher Browning and Robert Paxton are not journalists. They are not commentators. They are not, you know, people on MSNBC. They have put their professional reputations behind the word. And, and therefore, it has to carry weight with anyone who, val- who, who believes there's something to be learned from history. Mm. Okay. Well, Jack, um, invoking history isn't just an intellectual exercise, right? I mean, you have personal connections to the very period of world history that we're we're speaking about, uh, in which the most you know horrific versions of fascism humanity has experienced have come from. Yes, uh, I have my role of honor of, um, of men who, when fascism was a dark and bloody reality, were fighting it. And I want to argue that the word fascist should be used in preference to authoritarian. Authoritarian is, is a political science term, an abstract term. Fascism is soaked with the blood of the 20th century. And I think it's more appropriate and, and uh, viscerally compelling. And my, my illustration of men who fought and some who died fighting uh, fascism begins with my cousin, Charlie O'Connor, one of 11 children uh, to Mame and Ed, born to Mame and Ed O'Connor in Dorchester, Massachusetts, who was raised to honor his parents, uh, participate in the life of his church, and to, uh, and to uh, have great pride in his country. Charlie volunteered uh, for the army and along with 20,000 other Americans was killed in the snows of Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, Charlie O'Connor died fighting fascism. A second veteran who fought fascism, Joe O'Connell. He was a colleague of mine at the Atlantic Monthly he had a severely, to see him, he, he sort of dragged his side with him, kind of walked with one foot. And you know what, in the way we all do, you look at someone like that and you think, oh gosh, you just look away. You think, what an affliction. And, uh, 
But what one should have said is one should have stopped where one was and saluted him. Joe O'Connell was in a unit that fought the fascists for 600 days, the longest of any uh, group in the, in the army from North Africa to Sicily, up the Italian boot, and near Monte Cassino, mm. Uh, Joe O'Connell was hit by a grenade and never walked right again, and he couldn't bend over without... Anyway, he saved our world, he and men like him, and he bore the scars of it. And when I think of any possibility of reviving fascism or anything even in a dilute version, it's as if you throw the sacrifice of men like that away and say, we don't care, we don't need you, prices are too high, Biden is too old, let's have Trump. God help us. Mm. Okay, folks, so this is the time where I always ask you what you think. Do you, do you agree with Jack and think it's time to call Trump and Trumpism the equivalent of isolationist fascism in this country? Or do you find the idea completely ludicrous? No matter what you think, let us know and let us know why. So you can do that via going to the On Point Vox Pop app. Hopefully you already have it. If you don't, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop and send us your thoughts there. Now, we do read every—actually, not read. We hear every single one of the messages that you send to us for the jackpot. And they are always thoughtful and always provocative. So, Jack, we're going to um, take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll hear what folks thought of last week's jackpot. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. Okay, Jack, we are back. And again, your theme for this week's podcast is uh, fascism, which is really interesting because before our break there, you said that uh, it gives you extreme pause and pain uh, when people say that, uh, you know, their prices are too high, Joe Biden's too old, doesn't really matter who you vote for. Well, that's actually very fascinating because surprisingly, we got a call almost <laughs> exactly <laughs> along those lines. Um, and here it is. I just, I don't like Biden. He's too old. Although I will vote for Biden only because if Trump would win, I can't leave the country. Okay, so there's a listener who said, yeah, Biden's too old, but he sees Trump 
as the bigger bigger threat rather than Biden's octogenarianism. Um, but anyway, that call that I keep calling it a call. That message came in because uh, the jackpot last week. You talked about New Hampshire and the New Hampshire primary's ability to uh, to uh, kneecap. Let's put it that way. Uh, incumbent presidents. So here's Alec. Uh, Alex Ross from Brooklyn, New York, and he wanted to tell you this about the current primary field. When Jack and Meghna set out to discuss the New Hampshire Democratic primary, Jack asserted that Biden had only one opponent, Dean Phillips. As of today, Marianne Williamson is the only candidate on the New Hampshire ballot. Biden's not on it, and neither is Phillips, who trails Matt Marianne in the polls. So please explain to me how you can have a reasonable and informed discussion of a primary race and fail to even mention an upper-tier candidate who is the only one appearing on the ballot for that state. Now, Jack, I will say that um, as a rule, I I like to discuss all candidates, no matter how far-fetched their chances at winning may be. Um, Also, Factually, Marianne Williamson's campaign went nowhere in the last presidential election, which maybe doesn't make makes it forgivable that she wasn't the focus of last week's jackpot. But what's your explanation to Alex? Well, first of all, he's uh, he, he's incorrect. I mean, he spoke before the New Hampshire ballot was issued. Mm-hmm. It, the primary is going to be on the 23rd of January, earlier by a week of, of uh, Biden's new beginning, which would be uh, S- South Carolina. And Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson and 18 other people are on that ballot. Joe Biden is not. And uh, there's a move to uh, write him in and uh, led by leading Democrats. On the other hand, other Democrats say, wait a minute, if we write him in and Dean Phillips wins the vote (laughs) by, you know, a substantial amount, Joe, there's going to be immense pressure for Joe Biden to pull out, as there was for Harry Truman in 1952 and Lyndon Johnson in 1968. So we don't know how that's going to play out, but uh, Dean Phillips is definitely on the uh, on the ballot. And you said 18 other people too, Jack. And I've, I've, now I feel yeah. that I've, I've backed myself into a corner when I said that I believe in talking about all candidates equally. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, well, let's move on to another uh, one of your listeners who um, tells us, by the way, that he was listening to last, last week's jackpot while making pancakes on a Sunday morning in Tokyo. So the jackpot is global. Uh, this is Daniel Heller, and he has this idea. I would like to see Joe Biden uh, resign the presidency, make Kamala Harris president, uh, make her, uh, you know, the incumbent. And then let's see what happens. I have a feeling that she is the one uh, who could lead the country. Um, she's a new generation. She has the ability. She has the yeah the support of many people who would vote for her and the Democrats would win. What do you think of Daniel's alternative idea here? Well, you know, it's interesting. The reporting about whether Biden would run or not late last year kept talking about something called the Harris problem. That if Biden didn't run, Harris would be the nominee. And the feeling within the Democratic Party was that she would lose. Why would she lose? 
Well, Stacey Abrams, the Georgia political activist, spoke to this a couple of weeks ago on television, and she said, misogyny and racism, that's what has given Kamala Harris the worst rating of any vice president, worst popularity since this was began to be measured in the 80s, which means worse than Dan Quayle. Mm. Uh, and she says it's, it's misogyny and it's racism. Well, it, undoubtedly, it, those, those forces are at work, uh, but, but it has to also be said she has not distinguished herself and she has continually seemed to uh, not be able to get her verbal footing uh, in, in, and to show any kind of political um, uh, finesse. Uh, however, uh, if she is the nominee, what Stacey Abrams said uh, about her popularity goes in spades when she's running against Donald J. Trump, who's a specialist in polarizing around misogyny, witness Hillary Clinton, and racism, witness practically everything he ever said about Barack Obama. So it would be an immense risk for the Democratic Party to have her as the nominee. Mm. Okay, so there was a lot of um, feedback that we got about just the primary calendar as it is and the caucuses calendar as it is. Uh, for example, here's Kevin Queen from Omaha, Nebraska. By the time our primary season election day comes around, it's more of a formality. Uh, just across the river, uh, you know, 10 minutes away from where I live is Iowa. And they're one of the first people that get to vote. And I just hate that how someone does in an early primary can dictate whether or not they are even going to be on the ballot when it becomes my turn to vote. Okay, so that was Kevin from Omaha, Nebraska. Then we heard, as we do every week, from Howard Turner in Elkhart, Indiana. And Howard very modestly said maybe he's not the voice from Elkhart or the view from Elkhart, as I wanted to call him, because he knows many, many people uh, living in his community that see the world very differently from him. And by the way, Howard, um, do us a favor. Go go talk to or or if you have neighbors that have those different points of views, tell them to listen to the jackpot and send us their thoughts. Now, um, Howard sent us an idea for how the primary season should be run, and he says he even sent a letter to the Democratic, uh, the DNC, urging them to adopt his plan. Dividing the states up into groups of around seven states each from a, with a state or two from each geographic area. Each area or each group would vote on the same primary day. And then you just next month, then the group two votes and so on down. Each cycle you rotate around so one group isn't always going first. Okay, so that innovative idea from uh, Elkhart, Indiana. One more here, Jack. This is James Utt from Minneapolis, Minnesota. James is very skeptical that New Hampshire will change anything about the lay of the land in 2024. I'm not at all confident that the restructured Democratic primary in New Hampshire in 2024 will have the capacity, let alone the likelihood, of drawing an important distinction to the fore and causing President Biden to realize that he may very well be a far weakened candidate for re-election than what he envisioned uh, even several months ago. Okay, Jack, I think James is saying there that Biden won't realize that he's a weaker candidate. What did you hear and what he said? 
Yeah, I think he was saying that whatever the decision, it, it isn't going to affect him the way it did LBJ. Yeah. yeah. You know, where you, where basically that was the, it was the coup de grace on Johnson's hesitancy. He, he just had to, to, once Eugene, Gene McCarthy made a strong showing against him. And something similar with Harry Truman in 1952. Uh, I, I think, I think James is saying that's not going to happen this year. Uh, and and it, it, it's entirely possible that it won't happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, actually, it's funny because I'm glad uh, James sent us that message because I'd forgotten to ask you something. When we did last week's jackpot, I wanted to ask you, <laughs> to put it bluntly, who really cares about New Hampshire? Uh, <laughs> you know, no, I'm serious because you mentioned that Biden, of course, isn't giving uh, New, the New Hampshire primary much thought at all. But maybe that's not the mistake that it seems to be, right? Because as you were pointing out, America 2023 or 2024 is very, very different from the America of the 1960s. So, you know, on the Democratic side, it does make sense to focus on places like South Carolina and Nevada. And they may be actually more telling than New Hampshire, what do you think, Jack? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yes, and that and that's that's one of the arguments that Biden used to uh, promote South Carolina. That uh, the the base of the Democratic Party are African American voters. They are in South Carolina in numbers, and that and in Nevada, of course, you've got Hispanic voters. That's that's what the Democratic Party is, and that and you know uh, he'll. They should have the saying. Whereas New Hampshire, I think, is ninety six percent white. Uh, so it's not a representative um, state for the Democratic Party in any in any way. It, it is more represented, you might say, representative in its demographics of the Republican Party uh, than it is of the Democrat. Mm. Well, every time I go up there to hike in the White Mountains, I am proud to make New Hampshire 95.9999% white. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, New Hampshire. I love you. You know I do. Okay, here's the last one. Now, this uh, actually, this is James again from uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And his greatest concern, even though he thinks New Hampshire won't change anything, is that a Joe Biden candidacy, actually, to bring us back to today's theme, Jack, it could lead to a second term for former President Donald Trump. I'm so so worried that the Democratic Party, especially under. Uh, President Biden's intransigence is running a gigantic risk of failing at the most critically uh, important time uh, in any modern electoral cycle. What do you think, Jack? The stakes are so high. Uh, Dean Phillips, the, the Minnesota congressman who's challenging Biden in New Hampshire, he says that while Biden was the only Democrat who could beat Donald Trump in 2016, he says this year Biden is the only Democrat who can lose to Donald Trump. Oh, that's a very frightening idea. And uh, uh, so we're, uh, you know, we're, what, 60 days out from the beginning of this. And it's going to be, um, it, 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 you know, it'll have its, uh, its colorful moments and its ups and downs and the horse race and so on. But brooding over everything is what we began the program with, that Donald Trump seems to be promising and bragging about uh, an American version of fascism in his second mm. term. Mm. Well, Jack, 
This is the point in the podcast where I usually ask you to to give us a teaser for next week, but we're actually going to take a pause uh, from the jackpot next week, not for any other reason than it's going to be Thanksgiving. and you de- We're pardoning the turkey. <laughs> and you definitely deserve a, a bit of rest uh, and reflection, given um, how fantastic the, the first 11 jackpots have been. And actually, because of that, uh, because we're taking a Thanksgiving break, I just want to say, Jack, uh, or share Jack with you, my profound gratitude to you, Jack, because uh, we've had a, what a twenty-year uh, professional colleagueship. I have learned so much from you every single day of those twenty years, and being able to have these weekly conversations with you now, Jack, just uh, it means so much to my mind and my heart. Thank you for being a friend and a key part of the On Point staff for so long. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, guys. Everyone else, we wish you peace and grace over the Thanksgiving holiday. This is On Point. <laughs>